Want to discover leading strategies, share experiences and connect with fellow consultancy leaders from companies like EY, PwC or Porsche Consulting? Then join us in Munich for the Leaders in Consulting Conference on the 27th of June, a one-day event exclusively for consultancy leaders like you. Places are limited, so head to leadersinconsulting.com to claim your ticket now. That's leadersinconsulting.com. See you there. If we speak to buyers, um, many buyers say, okay, we start to look at companies, for instance, uh, that start with five to 10 millions in, in revenue. That, that's one of the reasons that um, larger companies get valued higher because they are assumed to be more stable, less dependent on the, on the owner, less uh, dependent on individual employees, less dependent on individual clients. Do you want to grow your business and learn best practices from other leaders in consulting? Then this is the place for you. Welcome to the Leaders in Consulting Show. This episode is powered by Subu, the company that can help you drive thought leadership, hiring and sales for your consultancy via LinkedIn. Check them out on sawoo.io, S-A-W-O-O.io. Today, we have Dr. Willem Kayser, founder and CEO of CNX Transaction Partners as our guest. Willem? Welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Sammy. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm a regular listener of your of your podcast, and I'm uh, really happy to uh, have an active contribution to your show now. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here. And it's going to be an interesting show because we're going to talk about um, yeah what every every business owner basically wants to achieve at some point of time that is selling his company for a nice price. So tell me about your company, CNX Transaction Partners. What are you doing? So CNX Transaction Partners is an uh, M&A uh, boutique firm. Uh, we do have offices in Munich and in Amsterdam. We help uh, company owners and, and investors at uh, buy and sell side advisory and corporate transactions. That, mean that, we friend, that means that we, for instance, help uh, company owners to sell their company or uh, work for uh, investors or corporates to uh, acquire companies. So we do this work on both sides of the table, so to say. Mm -hmm. And what is your job at your company? Well, I'm the founder and the CEO of the company. So um, my job is relatively broad, given the size of the company. Um, I um, do the company, uh, the, the acquisition of, of clients, uh, sales marketing. Sometimes I'm, I'm also in uh, the delivery uh, involved. Um, I'm increasingly helping to standardize processes, um, which is required to grow. Um, and recruiting is also an issue that I'm, uh, I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And can you give me a proxy of the size and growth of your company? Absolutely. So we, we're, um, I started by myself and I started to grow the company or build a team a couple of years ago. Um, we're now a team of seven plus uh, four senior advisors that help us on a deal by deal basis. Uh, we do have five people in the Munich office, and since last year, we've opened an office in Amsterdam where we have two partners, um, yeah, so that we can cover that uh, geographic area as well. So what geographic areas do you cover right now? Um, well, since CNX Transaction Partners was founded in Munich in uh, 2010, already 12 years ago, um, a lot of the business is done in the German-speaking Europe um, countries. And since a year, we do have an office in, in Benelux. Uh, that means that most of our clients uh, come from Germany, Austria, uh, Switzerland, or from the Netherlands. Um, but the bio universe that we speak with uh, can, be, can be globally. We've sold 
companies to Indian uh, buyers, to Swedish buyers, uh, US buyers, um, etc. Interesting. To, to, out of curiosity, to whom do you sell, uh, like to sell most? Um, it's, um, it's, it's exciting um, to, to sell to different parties, really. Um, I really do have good experience with Swedish uh, parties, for instance. Also, like German-German is, is always nice and, and easy. I never sold a company to a Chinese uh, buyer, to be honest. Um, always found it um, really difficult to, to, um, yeah, to come to a closing with a, with a Chinese buyer. Okay, interesting. Why do you think um, is this the case? I think it was at the end a matter of of, of understanding. Uh, it was really hard to uh, to really read um, what the other party was was thinking, um, where they want to go at, and uh, that's easier even with with people, for instance, uh, from from India. And um, I think that that's that's the case uh, why it uh, didn't didn't really work out. So. Uh, at, a, at a let's say relationship uh, level, it didn't work out with the buyer and the and the seller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. People matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, who is your ideal customer if you are on the sales side? So you're helping to sell a company. Then I think it's it's good to to, to differentiate between the company that is for sale and the and the company owner as an ideal customer. So the companies that we typically work for they they have an exit value that starts with about 10 to to 20 million and ranges up to uh, three digit million uh, figures which is large for us um, um, and most of them are in either in the professional services space or in uh, technology space um, or a combination of both so it can also be professional services firms that uh, do have a technology uh, angle And then, then the, the company owner, and that's that's also interesting because we we don't just sell the um, the company. We also work with the company owner for for quite a long time, to be honest. So, an M and A process can can easily take six to nine months. I think we will elaborate on that uh, later on. Um, and then it's important to um, to build a trustful re uh, relationship with the client. So that's that's important to find someone that you can really build. Um, a trustful relationship with and during the transaction. I really uh, like to work with company owners that uh, want to make the best out of their company, which doesn't necessarily need to be, uh, let's say, the highest price, but, but it is often the, the, the highest price so that you can really work with that are reflective on the company, on their business, so that they can practically do the things that, that we are going to discuss uh, today to really get the best out of their companies. So we are here on the Leaders and Consulting Show because, well, part of, of your ideal customer is also in the professional service firm space. And um, so the goal is to, to tease out some learnings and best practices from a professional who's selling companies again and again because usually as a company owner, you don't sell more than once um, and that should be a good sell for you. Um, so what types of um, businesses did you recently help um, sell, maybe also in the professional services space? Yeah, let me just elaborate on, on just a couple of uh, companies that we've just worked with or are we, we're currently uh, working with so that you get an idea of, of, of the type of companies. So there's, uh, for instance, a, a customer service business process outsourcing company that, outs that helps large companies to outsource their customer service. Um, it has eight uh, um, locations in three countries, so very international, over 700 people, growing very strong. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's an interesting one. 
Then, uh, for instance, a, a B2B full-service provider for the development of, of cosmetics, also a professional service, um, very profitable, um, very, um, very professional. Uh, so we sold at the beginning of, of last year to a, uh, to a private equity uh, fund. So an, um, not a strategic buyer, but a private equity uh, fund. Uh, so that was a very good one. We're currently working for a, a business consulting boutique in the field of digital transformation, which is which is very interesting uh, because of the situation. It's um, uh, a rather small company, so less than 10 million in sales, and they want to uh, belong to a larger um, group, which is seen very, very often in the, in the field of... Um, professional services now we can elaborate on on uh what uh what deals are done at, at the moment um so yeah that's 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 one and for instance we we currently that's also interesting we also work on the buy side we help to um a PE fund to build a european player in the space of cybersecurity services so there we work on the buy side um which means that we identify uh, targets and, and help uh, acquiring these uh, these targets. So, um, what deals are done at the moment in the professional service firm space? What do you see, and what trends do you see? Um, there is actually quite a lot of activities at the at the moment. Um, so, if you speak about the reasons why um, why companies buy professional services companies, then we see a large trend in uh, specific know-how that is being uh, acquired. Um, that can be, for instance, I don't know, from, from uh, IT-related companies that are very good at implementation of IT uh, technology that acquire uh, more strategy-related uh, advisory firms um, to do more upfront advisory to higher fees, so to say. So, um, but also the other way around, like like more um, um, companies that come more from strategy that develop themselves into more technology and implementation. Um, a good example, I think, for for um, acquiring specific know-how is, is Accenture. Accenture is, is, for instance, very active in, in buying. They, for instance, bought a company called Umlaut. Um, I think this year or maybe last year, uh, but at least recently, uh, Umlaut is a company that is focusing on, on engineering and um, Accenture is building um, its own engineering business under the brand Industry X. And that helped a lot to, um, add, to build that business, so to say. But also other, um, that was quite a large transaction. They have a couple of thousand employees. But also we see uh, smaller, um, smaller transactions. Um, for instance, Roland Berger, recently uh, bought a company called uh, Polarix Partners um, that had apparently only like 30 people, um, but the competencies uh, were so strong in, in manufacturing in this case that it was attractive for Roland Berger to, uh, to buy this, this company. Um, then we see a lot of roll-ups, which is interesting, especially around the, the field of, let's say, a combination of, of um, advisory um, technology and digital transformation. So if you look, for instance, at a large private equity fund, Deutsche Private Equity, that's doing two roll-ups in this field. Can you quickly elaborate what a roll-up is for people who never heard that before? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's, it's basically a buy and build strategy. Um, so what DPE does, they they buy um, a platform company, which is typically a larger company that they buy for a higher price. And then they, they buy a lot of add-ons. So smaller companies that, that suit or fit to this, uh, to this strategy and build a larger company uh, with that. Um, and the interesting thing is, uh, in, in this case, so um, uh, Deutsche Private Equity uh, started these uh, roll-ups already a couple of years ago, if I recall well, maybe four or five years ago already. But they now launched a continuation fund um, to continue these investments. So they're so successful, they um, launched a fund at the value of 700 million to continue these two platform strategies. And that's 700 million only in equity. So if you, you can imagine if they leverage this with, uh, with that, um, there's a lot of potential uh, for, for companies to be bought, so to say. Mm -hmm. I have one example as an add-on. I don't know if you have a new Bakavi management consulting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, they, they were bought by Gentech. They were good at logistics, right? Yeah, yeah, they are, they are still operating within this larger company that has 100,000 employees. And I interviewed uh, like um, the, the former head of Bakavi um, and and uh, and basically the 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 director who is responsible for for running the whole business, including the Bakavi line. Um, so the sub subsection, of course, because it's a big company. And the reason for them to buy um, Bakavi was to get a foot in the door in the German market. And um, for them, because Bakavi is more a strategic consulting company in their view, it's like just the door opener to make more business because they have all the implementation in this big company. So for them, even if Bakavi doesn't make money on like the former Bakavi consultants don't make money on their on the initial um, um, strategic consulting project, which I think they still do, um, they make much, much more money um, in the whole implementation because they keep the clients for years and years. I mean that that apart from uh, the specific know-how that I just um, elaborated on is a, is a is a great driver too. So we see, let's say, larger uh, foreign groups also um, buy and build groups that that come into the German markets. Uh, Falcon is a good a good example. It's a Dutch uh, group, new group uh, that that wants to be active in the German market uh, now. Um, so so that works well. Uh, what we also see is is uh, indeed customer access. So. Um, Boutique firms that have a long-term relationship with with top clients and that um, buyers can uh, can profit from, and and more and more it's also talent. Um, so in in every industry there's a war for talent also in uh, in the consulting industry and professional services. Uh, so that's also a driver for um, for acquisitions. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot happening that maybe many don't see if you don't actively look for it, but um, it's probably not being less in the next coming of uh, coming years. It's probably by, well, oh, let me ask openly, do you think it will go down now with the economic downturn or do you think the whole transaction space will keep on running? I think, well, I mean, one has to see a little bit and, and differentiate. I think larger transactions is difficult at the moment. So, uh, but that's not the space we're in. We're, we're typical, uh, let's say, mid-size, mid-size companies. Um, we, we see still a lot of activities, um, but especially if we speak uh, about private equity companies, they have increasingly problems in, in refinancing and, and uh, 
and and uh, acquiring debt for their uh, for their acquisition, and that's an uh, important part of their um, acquisition strategy to leverage um, their equity with with debt. And uh, that's that's interesting to be seen how that's that's going to develop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I cross my fingers for anyone who's in this space like you and for anyone who wants to sell this company that um, it's all going to fade away by end of next year and, and going in the right direction again. But, but um, even uh, during uh, during Corona, um, uh, Sammy, there was a lot of activity. Everyone thought, okay, it's going to uh, uh, to kill the market, but that was not the case. So um, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Um, I mean, that's good reasons for um, for companies to be bought, and these reasons remain. So, so I'm I'm pretty pretty optimistic. Um, if you look at corporate succession, um, someone who was let's say 65 uh, before Corona is probably now 67, just by mathematics. And and uh, there will be a day that that it's a good timing for him to to sell his company if he doesn't have a solution, for instance, within the within the family and. And these these things uh, remain. Um, we also had a, at, at various discussions with company owners, not just in the professional services area, but uh, also others that that said, "Okay, we we've had this crisis now. I, I waited after uh, Corona, and then uh, I was waiting for the the world to be normal again. And now we end up with a, a world that is even less normal. Um, maybe I I shall buy my uh, sell my company uh, right now because um, it will take another couple of years for it to be to be normal again but what we see is is uh, and in this respect um let's say that the due diligences are are more difficult um that um, processes tend to be uh, a bit longer that that's what we see mm -hmm. so if I were a um, professional service firm owner um, so a managing director and founder co-founder of a consulting company um, what are the like how should i value my company if i just if i'm just curious um, and want to know okay how much would my company be worth right now roughly um, how would you help me find out what my company is worth um, that, that's really difficult um, because the um, you've all heard about um, let's say multiples, multiple ranges, um, and and that's all true. But but the ranges are ranges, um, and and some of these companies uh, are sold for a higher price, and, and some are for a, for a lower price. So it's always good to um, to do calculation um, and and valuation on on the company as such. But if that's not possible, the second best solution is to um to look at comparables so companies that that are similar so to say that's difficult to find so if you're in the uh, let's say uh, technology advisory space you can say okay i'm someone uh, i'm somewhat like accenture only i don't know a couple of thousand times smaller um it's not a good good idea yet to take the uh, public valuation of accenture and then uh, put that for your uh, for your company. So with comparables, uh, one needs to be very careful, uh, but that, that can be done. And then the next uh, best step is to look at, um, at, at multiples. Um, and multiples typically uh, refer to either EBIT or the, uh, the revenue, the sales of the company. Um, whereas, um, let's say, smaller companies get often uh, valued by an EBIT multiple. Um, for larger companies, uh, one could also discuss um, um, revenue uh, or sales uh, multiples. What is the, the, the cutoff where you say this is larger? 
Yeah, that's that's always a matter of definition. But I would say, like, some twenty million uh, is is is. Um, the, the thing is, you always start with the um, with um, the the EBIT um, EBIT multiple. That's let's say the the most commonly used. Uh, but you can take uh, if it is of adv- advanced uh, advantage uh, as a seller. You can also let's say compare the uh, it with a with a sales multiple, and then then the uh, the truth may be somewhere in, in between, so to say. It's always interesting also to um, to compare these two two. So if you say we have a um, a multiple range of um, of of eight at, at a maximum and and um, of of EBIT. And for the same company or say the same range of companies, the uh, EBIT, uh, the, sorry, the sales multiple is one that implies that you have a profitability of around 12, 13% or so. So as an average for the, uh, uh, for the industry. So once you're better, uh, you can expect better multiples and better prices. If you're, you're uh, worse, you will probably get, get a smaller, um, a smaller multiple. Looking at multiples, um, there are so-called uh, expert multiples available in the market. There's different sources for that, and they start for smaller companies. Let's let's say four and a half, five times EBITDA, or EBIT, um, which is often uh, not not far away from each other with professional services companies, um, and they go up for small companies to 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 six, seven. And for larger companies, it can be eight to ten. Um, and for for medium, large is then uh, three digit uh, figures. And uh, well, companies in the middle are uh, also in the middle then with uh, with the the multiples. It can be something like six to to eight, so to say. But the interesting thing is, I mean, you're a company owner and you're the um, the owner of a professional services firm. Um, and you'd probably rather have a uh, multiple of eight or ten for your company uh, rather than than four or five. So the question is, what drives um, what drives the value of your company? What makes a uh, buyer pay an eight times or a ten times multiple rather than a four or five times multiple? And and that's that's where we come into play, so to say. So yeah, I mean, you pose the question, I want an answer. So how can I increase the value of my company? What's what's uh, making my company more valuable if I have a professional service firm? The, the, the good news is there's a um, there's a lot you can do. Um, so you've probably heard of of many aspects that a, that the buyer uh, looks at um, at clients, client retention, growth, um, financial figures. Um, they look at your your contracts, etc. But if you want to break it down, you can break it down at, at three factors. And, and that's um, what every buyer um, would, would look at in the end. So they would look at um, what cash flow can I generate from the company in the future, not in the past. So what, what cash flow can I generate in the future? What is the growth, uh, growth of it? And how stable is it? It's that easy. It's these three things. So if, if a... Um, um, a buyer asks uh, you about the business model. It's how do you generate cash flow in the future? If a um, buyer asks you about how is your organization set up, it's probably about growth. And if he asks you about your contracts, if he sends in a lawyer that looks at your uh, at your contracts, it's probably he wants to check on the on the stability of of the business. So don't be angry if uh, they send in the lawyers. They just check your. Um, stability of the business, and if it's good, they're ready to pay um, a higher multiple. 
So that's the formula where you can uh, bring back everything uh, onto. And, and, and then there's a lot of things you can do to increase these uh, three factors. So from, from you, you've seen a couple of professional service firms. So what are um, the most common things that you see professional service firm owners could do better in order to increase the business? And they probably shouldn't start two months before they want to sell. So if you go back and say, okay, uh, what should I start maybe a couple of years before so that I can sell it profitably in the future? Absolutely. And then, and we always try to work with company owners um, way before a transaction. But reality is that many uh, company owners just come to us when they at the, at the very moment that they have decided to, to sell their company. Then they want to sell it and, and, and that's perfectly okay. Um, but if you have some time before, there's a lot of things you can uh, you can work on. And um, that's also things you can work um, on when you when you start your company. For instance, work on a clear market uh, positioning. Um, if you do have a clear market positioning, if you're well positioned in your market towards your competitors, um, you have a strong competitive position, and that that always or often results in, um, in 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 good fees. Not not only, for instance, hours that you charge. Um, you can look at at various uh, revenue streams. Um, instead of just selling your time, you can also look at how can I uh, sell. Um, value. Um, I have met a professional services firm that uh, worked on a uh, hourly or, or daily fee base. They uh, helped companies to um, find savings within the uh, organization within different categories. And, and then they changed their, their business model and they say, okay, we practically um, do this um, for free. So we come into your company for free and we help you find uh, savings but we would like to have half of your savings for two years. Without us, you wouldn't have the savings. Um, with us, you get the savings um, and, and we profit from it both. And after the third year, it's, it's all yours. And that, that's really a strong business model because you, you get away from what uh, many professional services firms are struggling with, just selling their time instead of uh, the value. What you could also look at if you have time in advance to... Um, to look, for instance, at fixed prices to to, to really build um, to build products um, and, and and sell these products instead of just selling um, selling your time. So so looking at the business model and and the way how you earn uh, money, how cash is generated, is something that um, that is uh, very important. Um, I th I feel that that speaking with with professional services firms. Um, that, that some firms lack a bit of, let's say, creativity there. So you can do a lot more to, uh, to, to earn, um, to generate cash um, apart from, let's say, the, the normal ways. And then, then you can look at your, um, at your um, that the company, and that's, that's also a mistake that's often made, is um, set up independent of the owner. Um, that, that's a common mistake, especially with smaller firms, uh, not only in professional services. Uh, I mean, in, in any company that we sell, um, there's the company owner. He founded the company or there's two. Um, the company highly um, is dependent on, on him, especially when it comes to, to, to client relations. And, and that's something you want to avoid. So I spoke to a company owner once and, and he said, hey, you know, we have this client, we, we work with him already for, for 12, 14 years, and we're so successful. We will never lose this, this, um, uh, this client. You know what? 
our uh, relationship is so trustful, we don't even have a contract. And, and that's really good from his perspective because he built a really, let's say, trustful relationship with his client um, that he even doesn't need a, a contract. But if you look at it from a buyer's perspective, that's that's horrible. I mean, um, you actually say that the client fully depends on the company owner and he is the one who sells the company. So he will uh, sooner or later uh, will be away. And um, so will probably uh, the client if, if there's not even a contract. And, and these are things you can work on. You can you can make clients um, clients of the company as opposed to clients of the company owner. Um, you can um, work on on internal um, structures, um, for instance, client relationship management, um, CRM system, for instance, that, that is available for everyone in the company that everyone can 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 work with. Is something that is um, often not seen. Um, it's often in the hands of the uh, the company owners that that keep in hand on the on the client relations, for instance. So that's a that's a very common common mistake. Um, and then you can work on the stability of um, your revenue streams, like a, a good mixture of new and old clients. So um, old clients um, in, in terms of long client relationships is something that is really good. Um, if you have recurring revenues with the same clients, that's really highly appreciated and highly valued. That's, for instance, why these all these SaaS companies uh, get these uh, high valuation because it's recurring revenue. So here we are talking about like um, maybe in the current market positions, maybe five to seven times revenue instead of uh, EBIT. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and, and there you have a. Um, a business that is highly independent of the of the owner, and uh, once you you pay your fee, I don't know every month, every year, uh, you're very likely to do that the next month and the next year again. So um, that's that's why these valuations are so so high. That has to do with one of the three aspects that I explained in the beginning, uh, being the stability of your uh, of your cash flow, but also professional services companies can can uh, can work on that, but still. They uh, need a good mixture, a good balance of, uh, let's say, old, older clients or, let's say, uh, clients that you work with for a long time, as well as, um, as, as new clients. What, what is a good mix? If you have 100% of, of clients in one year, how many should be like existing clients and how many should be new logos? It depends a bit on the um, on the business model. If you're a marketing agency, it may be different from from strategy consulting, or um, if you do IT consulting, um, um, then it's, it's it's even longer uh, projects that you're normally uh, in with. So I would say some somewhere in between, let's say twenty to thirty percent new business would be would be very good to keep it fresh, um, also to keep your your company. Uh, in shape from a uh, from a sales perspective, right? Let's, let's put it this way: If you were the owner of a consulting company, which I am, by the way, yes, I mean. Yeah, 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 I know. Um, <laughs> so, what revenue um, would you work towards, um, and and what maybe um, EBIT margin or what other like one, two, three main KPIs would you like pin on the door of your refrigerator and look at it every day and say, "This is my goal. If I hit these KPIs." I'm able to sell my company at a really good price and I have achieved my goal. Also, that is um, highly dependent of, of the specific industry that, that you're in within the uh, professional services uh, space. But I would say in, in general, 
Um, if we speak to buyers, um, many buyers say, okay, we start to look at companies, for instance, uh, that start with five to 10 millions in, in revenue. Um, that, that's one of the reasons that um, larger companies get valued higher because they are assumed to be more stable, less dependent on the, on the owner, less uh, dependent on individual employees, less, in, less dependent on um, individual clients. So that's the general rule of thumb, like larger companies get valued um, higher, uh, higher. So if BMW uh, loses its CEO, it's not that dramatic. But if a, um, a small um, boutique firm loses its, its founder, uh, that may be very, very uh, dramatic. So that has to do also with the, with the, the stability. So I'd say five to 10 million is, is something that um, also, if you, if you look at, a, um, at an EBIT, um, one to two million in EBIT um, is something that, that gives you access, let's say, to, uh, to professional buyers. So, so in percentage, it would be 10 to 20%? Yeah, exactly. I would rather say 20 to 30 percent to be to be to be very attractive. But again, that depends on the uh, on the industry uh, that you're in. Um, some industries are just not as uh, profitable as um, as as others. Uh, but I would say 20 to 30 percent in in margin is the is is very good to sell your company and a minimum of let's say 10 million um, to have access to. Um, to let's say a, a wider group of, of buyers, it doesn't mean that you can't sell your smaller company, right? But but it's another play. A second a second thing, what I would also look at is is that you get uh, continuous growth in within your company. So if you can show year after year that that for a couple of years that your company is is growing, that your um, organization is set up for growth, um, that's really strong towards a buyer. Then you can really achieve higher multiples. You mentioned one point that I found really interesting, and that is um, basically productizing your services. Um, why would you advise a professional service firm to productize the service? Let me let me say first, it's not easy to productize, um, especially consulting services. There's other professional services firms that uh, that, that uh, it is easier with to productize. But once you have products. Um, it's um, it's easier to 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 sell uh, the, the, in the first place. So um, even you as a company owner or as a CEO, you don't have to do the selling, right? So um, if if it's a product, you can explain it to to an employee. Um, what is the what does the product contain? Um, what is the outcome? And what is what is the price? So everyone. Um, who knows about sales can sell it without being an expert. So it can professionalize your, your sales process. The same accounts for your, um, for your delivery process. So if you have products, um, then you can easily, um, um, let's say, um, scale your business. Um, you can better uh, take advantage of the, of the resources that you have. Um, so that, uh, that, that helps a lot. Yeah. And, um, and both has an has an impact. So the one um, being able to have, um, well, you say other people besides the, the owner, it could even be a sales team then, which most consultancies don't have right now. So most most listeners, it's still the partners that should do everything: uh, selling, doing the business, hiring, everything. Yeah, and um, 
the ones I talked to, and especially I think you know the the guys like Greg Alexander from the United States, the guy who sold his company. Yeah, <laughs> it was one of the uh, uh, my favorite uh, podcasts that I've heard uh, with you. Right? That was really impressive uh, what what he did. To recap, he built a thirty person consultancy business with thirty million revenue, fifteen or sixteen million EBITDA, and sold it for one hundred and sixty million. So um, a little bit uh, around ten times EBIT. That's that's very impressive. And that is very impressive. And he basically productized the service and had salespeople sell. So his uh, 30 employees were, were not the ones who were selling. He had a sales team, and even an external sales team, um, sell, selling for him because he had a productized business, uh, solution. And, and it worked really well for him. So I think he was even a well-made man before he sold his company. I mean, if you make 60 million EBIT and he owned 50%, you make 8 million each year. It's not too bad, um, but after the sale, wow, it's it's even more amazing. Yeah, that, that's really imp- impressive, and and that shows, let's say, the value of of building uh, products for your consulting company. It always um, also shows that um, just looking at multiple as a corridor doesn't make sense because if uh, if the company would have been valued uh, just with a let's say normal professional services uh, valuation corridor, uh, that would have been a different uh, different number probably. And I looked at the company, they grew even much, much further. Uh, so it's way beyond this 30 million revenue now. I think it's 10, 20 times more now. Um, so he built an engine that could run on, um, which is basically why the acquirer wanted to buy him, uh, very likely in hindsight. Yeah, but that, that's a bit what I said uh, previously, uh, Sami, without knowing the firm in detail, um, because it, it generates a lot of cash. Um, it has high growth and and uh, uh, high uh, stability, uh, which is also shown after the transaction, of course. So you can look at it, back at it uh, after a couple of years if the if the transaction was successful, which obviously is the case then for the buyers. So that's a really good example. Yeah, let, let me wrap up a couple of main points that I, I I found and I see again and again during the discussions with other leaders of consulting companies. So the one thing is uh, make the company independent of the owner, of yourself. That's very important because otherwise nobody wants to buy your company. Or if they buy your company, you have to stick around for a long time. And you don't want to stick around for a long time. Absolutely. The the second one, productize your services uh, where possible. Um, it's not easy, as you said, but if it's possible... Um, you basically can create a sales motion that is independent of the very expensive partners that you have in your company. Um, and and that goes along with the productizing focus on 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 a niche, focus on something. Yeah, be known for something uh, that also enables you to grow faster. Without like independent of wanting to sell your company, um, you can grow faster if you focus on a niche. And I see many consulting companies still not being small ones. Huh? So some with two three hundred employees still doing everything. If you ask them what are you what do you focus on? Strategy. We do strategy. We, we can do, we can, we get things done. Yeah. We are the ones who do things. Great. Yeah. They, they are known for nothing. Absolutely. That's what I said in the beginning. So the first thing a uh, company owner um, of a professional service firm should work on is market positioning. Absolutely. Just have a clear market positioning that you can easily explain. And then it's also easy for buyers, right? So um, how can a buyer judge um, if a company that, that, uh, achieves things or, or does everything suits um, to his company. It probably it won't. 
So if you have a clear market positioning, it's also uh, easier for, for buyers to identify if there's a match uh, relatively quick. Yeah. And I mean, I understand the notion when you start your consultancy, you probably accept almost every project just to be afloat and get some money in. But at some point, you have to start saying no, which maybe hurts a little bit or a lot for some people saying no to potential revenue, but saying no means saying yes to other revenue that you don't see right now. No, also, let's say getting away from just selling the hours and adding another capacity that you can sell uh, eight hours per day, 10 hours a day. Um, that also helps. And then there is productizing is, uh, is, is one of the keys, I think. And then and also looking into other business models, as I said uh, early on, uh, look what you can do on fixed prices. Look at what you can do uh, on, on participating in the success of, um, of your customers. Yeah, I would even throw a third one and look at subscription models. Um, so I'm a big fan of having a product that your customer needs all the time, where they need it again and again. And you can say, okay, let's make a monthly or yearly subscription contract. You pay amount of X, you get Y, and everybody's happy. And you know what you get. And we know that we can um, basically employ the right kind of employees for, for delivery. Uh, it has a lot of advantages. And you, you basically also can start to charge upfront because in subscription models, buyers are used to right now, like in these software models, they, they don't buy, uh, they don't pay Salesforce at the end of the year. They pay at the beginning. Absolutely, and yeah, that's another advantage of these, um, let's say, products. You can you can just uh, charge them uh, upfront. You don't have to work your hours and uh, and send an invoice and get paid thirty or sixty days afterwards. You can just um, get it get it charged upfront. So that's good for your cash flow uh, and and for your for your stability. Yeah, and if you have not uh, experienced this pain, I have um, I have a client of ours who works with uh, with insurance companies. And he has to do the work. Then he, he basically bills them, sends a bill, and then he has to wait two to six months until they pay him. And he has no chance of getting the money faster. And he has a problem that he's growing fast. So he has a cash gap that he has to bridge somehow. And um, I mean, then growing is no fun anymore. Um, that is painful. That is really painful. That's probably not one of the uh, the best uh, prerequisites for uh, for selling the company at an, a very attractive uh, price. So that that's something that that he could uh, or should work on uh, on, a, on his business model. Yeah, yeah, I, I try to give him some advice and tips. It's not that easy because the industry is a little bit backward on some things. But um, maybe he just has to try some new ways of um, exploring. Um, with their clients together, maybe make a more attractive price. Maybe. maybe work on something that he can change this model because this is really not sustainable. Yeah. So I, I spoke to a couple of professional services firms in the last couple of weeks uh, by coincidence that, that do have both, uh, let's say, a consulting uh, part and an implementation technology part. And uh, many of them said, okay, this, this implementation part, uh, so if you implement a platform at a, at a client, uh, you also maintain this, uh, you refer the development of that. So that was a stable part of the business in, uh, in the COVID uh, time, so to say. And the, um, the let's say, the, the strategy work was, was the first work that the client said, okay, I can do that later on. Uh, I will just save costs uh, for the time being and then see what happens in this, uh, in this pandemic phase. Yeah, and that's that's we talked about it in the beginning, but that's a trend that I see um, where where you combine either within your own company you can build it yourself, and it makes you uh, it makes your um, business more stable in terms of revenue, or 
you you merge with another company, you buy another company, or you get bought by another company, so that you can combine the strategic part and the execution part, because both together are really more powerful than both uh, stand alone, so to say. And and that again is one of the drivers for uh, for a lot of transactions in the in the market, like look, looking exactly for these uh, complementary uh, skills in the market. So either um, the, that come before or after your um, your own services. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm curious. Can you give me a hands-on example of um, of the last or one of the last professional service firm transactions that you did? And can you walk us through the whole process step-by-step uh, step with this example? Because I think that would be really interesting to, to, to hear. So um, we did it in, in, in a structured process. And I think uh, working with a structured process is, um, is, is the best way to, to sell your company, um, to, to really get the price uh, that the market is, is ready to pay. So the, the initial situation was that um, the company got approached by buyers uh, on a regular basis. And and sometimes they um, they spoke to these um, acquirers just to be um, just just to uh, keep up some exchange because they were curious. And at the end, okay, they said, okay, we're ready to to, to sell. But again, they um, they found that um, or they found out that the um, psychology within these processes uh, changed over time. So at the beginning, a buyer was very interested in the company and said, okay, you've done this very well and. Uh, You've been very professional in building this, and uh, um, can we get this information? And, and uh, they they want to get towards exclusivity very early, um, and and then then it changes, right? So, so the time uh, plan gets gets slower. They want more information, and and um, you as a company and as a company owner, you have already invested some time, some effort, and, and you really want to do the deal. But then questions come up and say, okay, we need to speak about the price again, and. And you see that, let's say, the dynamics of the transaction uh, changes. Whereas when you um, when you um, sell a company through its, uh, uh, through um, a structured process, um, this is exactly what you don't want to happen. So you want the uh, the best price in the market. So you can do a lot of valuation on, on uh, before the transaction, but in the end, you need to find a company that is ready to pay the price, um, and, and that you can do through a structured uh, process. So what do we do in, in such a structured uh, process that we most of the time uh, recommend? Again, uh, talking one-on-one -on -one can, can work very well. So if you get the price that you uh, expect, um, just go for it, um, do it. Um, but it's, it's very probable that you uh, will get a higher price um, later on. So we start with the with the strategy and the approach um, together with the clients. It's really important to to analyze with the client why does the client actually want to sell um, and and what, what does he want to have from it? Does he want to stay in the company or not? Um, is he after the cash or is he happy with um, a reinvestment, for instance, in the in, in the company? Um, what does he want with the company uh, to happen? Um, etc. Um, is he um, is he using the money to do something else, or does he want to retire? Um, so, what is the, the personal situation, etc. Um, then we look at um, what could a um, specific sales process uh, look like. It, let's say the the structured process is, is built the same, but um, in detail, it's always tailored to the requirements of the um, of the seller. Um, And then once we said, okay, we, this is the, 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 um, the process that we've set up, 
um, we do the positioning and the documentation for once and for all. So if you talk on a one-on-one -on -one basis with a uh, with um, one interested party, typically you're not prepared, right? So um, the interested party is asking for information, then you give it bits and pieces, and often the information doesn't, um, let's say, match together. It's not consistent, and uh, that, that's what you want to avoid. So that's that's where we start working on um, on the documentation. Um, we work on a business plan. Uh, we work on an uh, intensive information memorandum that uh, displays all the aspects of the of the firm that are relevant uh, for a buyer to um, to evaluate uh, the company, and we work already on the data room. So we we really uh, look on what data is there, what contracts are there, what figures are there, and and is this consistent? And and often there is a lot of work uh, to do prior uh, to reaching out, so to say. Um, and in the meantime, we, um, together with the um, with the company owners, we compose a, a long list of um, interested parties, potentially interested partners. And there we often take um, various buyer groups, where we call that. So that can be strategic buyers, um, that can be buyers from other countries that want to enter the country, that can be... Um, Companies that that are uh, upstream or downstream of your business, but that can also be financial uh, financial investors. That can be family offices. Just to give you um, um, a sample of all the uh, the possibilities, so to say. So within this structured process, you're able to see um, the the possibilities that the different groups of uh, of buyers uh, bring you. We often have the case that. Um, company sellers um, don't necessarily want to speak to uh, financial investors. Um, they say, okay, sell it to a strategic partner. There's so much advantages and they, they pay more after all. Um, but within this process, you have the chance to really interconnect uh, with these financial um, investors. And sometimes company owners see, okay, they're, they're quite nice people. They uh, know how to deal with my company. They have a nice plan to develop further the company. I can even reinvest into my company. And that's, that's sometimes attractive uh, for them. So when everything uh, is, is said and done, um, we reach out to these potential uh, buyers and that can be maybe 10, but it can also be like 50, depending on what we feel um, that, um, that we can handle on the one side and the other side, what we think we need to be successful because the structured process is structured so that you have a high probability uh, to get the best solution for the company being the best price, the best uh, contractual conditions, et cetera, but also a high probability that you actually sell the company. Um, you don't want to end up uh, such a process without having sold uh, the company. So then we reach out on an anonymous basis in the um, in the first place with a, with a teaser so that the interested partner doesn't know yet um, who is uh, for sale, but still it contains um, information about the business model, about the client and client structure, about financials, so that they can have a, a first idea about the company, if they're interested in principle or not. Such a teaser can be three to five pages, um, and it gives a good overview of the business. So if you're a buyer, you can judge for yourselves if it's worth to, um, to look at it uh, deeper. Then we ask the um, potential buyers to sign an NDA. So that's the, the part where it really gets, gets confidential. And after signing the NDA, they get the um, information memorandum. And the information memorandum, as mentioned, contains the, uh, the aspects that the buyer needs to know to, um, 
judge the company, to, to evaluate the company in all those aspects. So that's the business model. That's the, the financials, of course. That's um, staff, personnel, uh, client structure, etc. So everything that, that the typical uh, typical um, buyer would like to know in order to uh, to evaluate uh, the companies. And then typically, um, we start the interaction with the uh, with the buyers. So the buyers always have questions. Of course, they want to uh, get into contact with the company with the company owners. But typically, we do the first uh, let's say stage of of interaction. Uh, answer first questions, which means that we also need to understand the company very well in order to be able to uh, to answer these questions. This has the advantage that the company owners can fully focus on um, on the company and on the on the business, which is also important. Yeah, it doesn't stop and shouldn't go down during this whole time. Huh? Absolutely, I've seen that uh, also on the buy side that that um, that company owners are so much involved in the in the transaction. That the uh, the actual um, planning suffers from that, so the actual um, revenues go down, and that's really horrible. You don't want to be in a transaction where you say, "I didn't meet my planning due to uh, all the meetings I had with you, Mr. Investor." And then we, based on the discussions we've had with the um, with the potential buyers and the information that we've provided, we um, collect first indicative offers, so non-binding offers. So we ask these. Um, um, potential buyers, not just what would you pay for the for the company, but we have a, a whole catalog of questions like um, who would be the party that, that buys the company? What would you do with it? What is your, your strategic idea with the company? Um, how much, of course, would you pay? How would you finance that? How, what would be the role from your perspective for the, for the management, et cetera? Um, so that it is easy for us, together with the, um, the shareholders, to um, to evaluate the uh, the offers, so our task is to make it as comparable as as possible, so that in the next steps you can re uh, next step you can really uh, meet um, or bring the uh, buyers and the management team the um, the sellers uh, together with management meetings. So typically they um, do a site visit and they get the possibility uh, to get to know each other to ask questions. And that's good for the relationship building already there. So uh, within this process, you have the uh, the chance to to meet various parties, also various concepts of um, of, of buyers, as I said, financial parties, um, strategic parties, uh, family offices, with the various concepts. Um, and after these uh, management presentations, um, we typically open uh, the data room for due diligence. And we tend to do that with, with only a very, very limited amount of, um, of parties, but not, not with one, um, maybe with two, maybe three, with, with, um, maybe with four, but not more. So we want to, uh, to handle it very well. Uh, typically, um, a buyer brings in its, his lawyers, his advisors, his tax advisors. So they have a lot of questions. Uh, it's a very intensive phase. And you don't want to handle too many parties uh, there, and that's also the phase where uh, where a buyer starts to invest money in, in third parties. So they start to hire consulting uh, companies, um, accountants, etc. So you really want that the people, the buyers that do the due diligence, have a relevant uh, probability of of actually buying the company. I think that's that's just a matter of uh, matter of fairness. And after the 
Um, and after the due diligence, you ask these, uh, or even during the due diligence, you ask these parties to confirm the offer. Um, and, and that's important because um, the non-binding offer was based on uh, the information that we provided in the, in the information memorandum. Um, so it's basically on, based on PowerPoint. But now we're later in the, in the process and they, they really have seen all relevant data, so to say. And the question is, do they still, now that they've met the company owners, the management, that they've seen all the data, um, do they still stick to their offer? Or is the data um, even better and then they want to increase their offer, which is, which is often the case. So um, buyers tend to have a higher um, uh, fidelity, a higher confidence in the, in the transaction. So they offer a higher price at that, at that stage. And that's then at the end of the due diligence, this is a stage where you typically decide for one party. Um, and what you do um, exclusive um, negotiations with. Part of the uh, due diligence is, is typically also a draft SPA, so a, um, a share purchase agreement, so a contract for, the, um, for, for buying uh, the company. And we ask the potential buyers to do a markup on that. What do you mean by markup? So um, what we typically do is um, we give the potential buyers um, a first draft of an of an, uh, a sales um, contract, of a, a buyer's contract, and ask them to uh, give their comments. Yeah, to, to change it um, according to what they want, according to their um, findings in the due diligence, according to um, whatever they want to have in there. And then you see parties that are um, relatively easy, so keep it relatively smooth. And then you have parties that have lots of, of, of reps and warranties, of, of guarantees. Um, and, and then you get a really good feeling of, of how they will act in further negotiations and how they will act as, uh, as partners in the, in, the, in the future. And that typically then out of the, let's say, uh, last two, three parties, uh, then, you, then you pick one and, and uh, you do the final negotiation based on uh, the changed SPA then. Um, and, and the typical time frame for that is, is when you look at the preparation phase, that's normally um, if the company is very well prepared, some six to eight weeks, sometimes a bit longer. Um, we try to be faster, but with experience uh, says uh, it always takes, takes longer, um, especially if you want to have uh, all the data uh, correct, all the data in a consistent, uh, consistent way, which is important. Um, then let's say the, the process afterwards, uh, once you go out, upward to the signing, that can be four to six months, sometimes, sometimes even, um, even later. Four times is really quick. So in this specific case, we did it really quick, but it can also be like some, uh, some six, sometimes eight uh, months, depending how you structure, how strict you structure the, the process. It also depends a bit on, uh, on what kind of buyers you're speaking with. If you speak a lot with financial buyers, private equity buyers, they're used to this. So they're, they're relatively quick normally. Uh, they know what they're doing. They're, it's their business to buy companies. Whereas as you uh, speak to um, strategic partners, sometimes it's, it's not their job to, to buy businesses. It may be a good fit, but it may be the, the first time, the second time, or the third time that they, uh, that they do this. So um, reflecting on the process, it, it's it's sort of a funnel that you um, 
that you help a, a relevant set of potential buyers um, to, to walk through. And on every um, milestone, you have the chance to uh, select um, who will get to the next round based on um, discussions you've had, based on offers you've, uh, you've actually had. And, and that's really good because um, you as a, as a seller, you stay in the driver's seat. You're absolutely the master of the process. Um, it's not driven by a, um, by a buyer in the end, um, like once you're um, in a one-to-one situation. Um, you're in charge of the, um, of the process. And the probability that you will um, achieve the best solution, being the best price, being the best contractual uh, conditions, um, that's very high in this in this process. So that, that's how we typically deal with the process. Um, and that's intensive. Um, and, and for that, it's also important, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that, that we have a, a very good, um, trustful relationship with our clients. Because at the end, you want to walk um, and, and do the signing uh, with him, right? Yeah, and having the, the signing dinner afterwards. Absolutely. That's, that's always, uh, that's, that's big fun. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so why, I mean, we, we heard some reasons, but can you sum up why it makes sense for a company owner to not try to sell his company by him or herself, but to try to get a good, good advisor on board and M&A advisory company? Um, there's various reasons. And many company owners, they sell their company only once. So they just have their company. So they just lack the experience. And the second reason that has to do with that is that the M&A market is very professional. So at the buyer side, you can assume that you find uh, professional people at the table that look at your company, that do the negotiation. And you want to have professional people at your side of the table as well to make sure that your um, situation has been taken care of pr- uh, properly. Um, then, of course, you have the emotional elements. Um, it's always good to have a third party negotiate for you um, so that, that you um, get away from the, from the emotional elements of the, of the negotiation. And also to, to uh, remain, let's say, the professional working relationship. Because often it is, um, as a company owner, you will stay on board, be it for half a year, maybe even for the next couple of years. And it's always good to have a third party in between so that you can uh, maintain the, um, the professional working relationship independent of uh, maybe tough relations. And I think the most important reason or one of the most important reasons is um, you as a company owner, you should focus on the development of the company. You really want the company um, to grow within this six to nine months or four to six months that you speak with uh, with these these parties. So you go out with the planning and you say, okay, we're going to grow um, at this at this pace in the next couple of months. And it would be a disaster if you if you don't re- reach that. And, and I've seen that 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 companies don't reach that in the in the um, in the in the next six months or so. And then a the buyer says, hey, if if you don't reach your goals in these six months, uh, how should I believe your your planning in in uh, in three years from now? Whereas when you're really good at your current trading during a transaction, um, it gives um, confidence in, in the growth and, the, uh, and also in the planning on the longer term. So that's, that's utterly important uh, that the company owner focuses operationally on the, on the company. It will take a lot of, uh, lot of effort anyways, right? Um, like like uh, preparing all the documents, um, being in the, uh, in the discussions at the end, is intensive and um, it's already a challenge to focus 
on the um, on the company, but let the professional work be done by professionals, so to say. Makes a lot of sense. So if I buy into, um, well, I need an M&A advisor, how do I find the right one? That's really challenging because, um, as I said, often you sell the company only once and um, the market is very transparent. So you don't know if if he's really good, uh, the one, or, or if he really does what he, uh, what he claims uh, to do. I think it's always, and that's also from the, the standpoint of an M&A advisor for, for myself, I think it's uh, important that you're able to uh, build a trustful relationship as we have a um, an intensive period of working together uh, ahead of us. That's that's uh, important. You probably need someone who's also um, ready to work with you prior to the transaction, so who really helps you in preparing the transaction and not just doing the, uh, the transactional work. So there's um, some boutiques that only do the transaction because there is the transaction fee, which is attractive. But getting um, an additional, let's say, 20% of sales price, which can be uh, intensive in the period before the transaction, can be really um, yeah, a changing event for the for the seller. So uh, that's that's uh, what you should look at. And, and maybe look at a company that is not a deal machine. Um, so we see some, let's say, deal machines that do a lot, or that start a lot of deals, so to say, in the market. Um, of course, many deals. Um, also relate to many experience, uh, but one should also question the, the success rate, so to say, and, and how intensively uh, the advisor then works with the um, with the advisor. What What are the most interesting things that you did see happen during M and A processes, and maybe that are also interesting to learn from from our for our listeners, for like owners of consultancy businesses. Yeah, um, I think it's, um, I, I could write a book about it. So there's so many situations that are that are funny, that are nice, that are uh, exciting in, in many ways. Um, so in, in one situation I've seen um, during the transaction process, uh, the largest client of the company walk away, which was really, uh, which was really difficult to, to handle. Um, that was a very challenging situation, which we, which we could, could solve uh, very, very well. How, how could you solve it? The, the thing is, we, we, uh, we were very well prepared in terms of a financial model that, that showed um, what was the, uh, so how much did they actually earn with the client? And uh, they found out that they actually, it was the largest client, but as often is the case, they didn't, uh, it wasn't the, the, the most profitable client. They were able to, uh, to regain a bit of the business and they were able to, um, to replace a bit of the business within the, uh, Within the process, so that could show uh, robustness also to to the buyer there. Um, but that's a situation that can always happen. Um, but but that requires a lot of work, uh, so to say. Um, I've seen many situations um, where, especially with older uh, company owners, that they work together with, uh, let's say, their trusted lawyer or their trusted tax advisor as as their M and A counterpart, so to say. And that's something that that's, um, rarely works. So uh, the advice is here and then the learning to really work with professional people, uh, not only on the M&A advisory side, but also on the law, on the, the legal side and the, and the tax advisory side who are uh, doing transactions uh, on a regular uh, on a regular basis. Um, I have seen, I mean, that, that's all on the, on the company side. Um, I've seen on the, at the company owner side, many, many things. Um, 
company owners that in the end, um, after a, um, a period of half a year uh, dealing with uh, various buyers, were really struggling with themselves if they were really to sell the company. So it is really important for a company owner to, to really question yourself, why am I doing this? What is the, the ultimate, let's say, goal of the sales process? And, and keep that in mind throughout the process. I even had a company owner calling me two days before the signing and said, hey, um, I've read through these reps and warranties again. Um, why do I have to sign 50 pages? I gave them a handshake. I don't want to do this. This is too much paperwork. Um, tell them uh, to, to skip 50% of the contract. Otherwise, I won't go to the signing two, two days before the signing. Although we've uh, repeatedly uh, talked it through again. And, and that shows that you really need to be clear as a company owner uh, to yourself. Why do you actually sell the company? What do you want to reach with it? And that makes it easier also in the negotiations. Like in every negotiation, if you want uh, or if you know what you want to reach, then uh, it's easier to, um, to to speak with them. So um, it's really interesting. It's exciting. Um, every every project is is different. And um, well, maybe writing a book is uh, is a thing that I could do uh, when I'm when I'm retired. Why why start so late? I think it would be interesting in terms of marketing to write such a book. I would read it. Absolutely. So it, it's really um, it, it's really exciting what you um, what you what you experience uh, both on the company side, but also on the personal side of of really good entrepreneurs, good company owners. And um, how early should you start looking for an advisor? Should it be just before, like right now I want to sell and in six to eight months it should be over. So I start to look now or should it be earlier? I hope that we've all learned in this uh, podcast that it makes sense to do some preparation uh, on, the, on the transaction. So ideally, let's say a year or two before to start a discussion um, together with the client um, what would a potential buyer look um, like? Uh, at, at what would uh, would he look at the company uh, like? Um, so that that's there's still time to to act. Reality says that it's often the case that once the uh, decision is made to sell, uh, people reach out to uh, to an MLA advisor. So which is later still a lot you can do within the structured process. You can do good negotiation, etc. But if you want to work fundamentally. Uh, on the company and then and prepare the company for for uh, for an exit. That's then too late. I have an hypothesis. I don't know if such an advisory firm exists, but my gut feeling is that if you, as an advisory firm, uh, eat your own dog food, so to say, and say, okay, you have to focus on one niche, yeah, and you're an expert in this niche, you can create value for these company owners before they even start to sell. So you can create like um, a kind of community. You can help them get better at, at doing their business. You can start building a relationship with them. You can even charge for all of that so that you don't make it for free. So you're kind of doing the the strategic part, you know, uh, before the transaction part. And um, and so even if they don't sell, you make money. But if they sell, you are for sure one of the top ones to be considered for leading this whole process. Um, so I'm not really familiar with this whole M&A advisory uh, market, but my gut feeling would be that uh, if such a company exists, they would beat um, competitors who don't do that. Absolutely. And I think there's a huge, uh, let's say, strategic advantage for company sellers 
if they have someone at their side, it doesn't need to be very intensive, right? You, you don't need to work uh, on a on a daily basis doing workshops every week, but but getting the the real uh, the real setup, uh, getting into the real in, in the right direction that that really helps and that can really make a huge uh, difference in the valuation. Yeah, yeah, great. So we are at the end of our conversation, and I have uh, still five rapid fire questions uh, lined up for you. Wim. Are you ready? I'm ready. Good. So what do you do to keep body and mind fit and sharp? That's sometimes a challenge, but I try to go to the gym two to three times a week. And uh, when it comes to the mind, um, my children, I have two kids. They're very good at uh, letting me forget about the spreadsheets, uh, the SBAs and, uh, and all the stuff that comes along with it. So it's basically the family and some some sports. And I do like the, uh, the Scandinavian uh, noir uh, movies and, and books. Um, that I regularly uh, read or, or watch. What is the book that you're reading right now? Um, it's actually the the, the bis, uh, business book. It's uh, Shenzhen of uh, Frank Zieren. I don't know if you've heard about it. Shenzhen is one of the most innovative cities in uh, um, in China. Um, it's sort of Silicon Valley, and it shows uh, in, in different aspects of society what they're working on, uh, what uh, artificial intelligence is doing, um, um, that's really interesting um, in terms of looking uh, into the future and who doesn't want to have a glance into the future. Yeah, it's interesting. We put it into the show notes. Um, do you have a favorite business leader that you are following? To be very honest, I don't. Um, so there's quite a few that I follow that I get inspiration from. There's not the one that I um, really follow and uh, um, I obey to everything uh, he or she says. Fair enough. Who should be our next Leaders in Consulting guest and why? Um, I think we've spoken about a guy called John uh, Wirlo. Um, he is the, uh, have, you know who I'm uh, speaking about? Well, I, I have the interview with him in two days. Oh, really? You can tell me what I should ask him. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's, that's very nice because... I mean, for the people who don't know, he has a podcast called uh, Built to Sell. And it's, it's exactly with um, a lot of the aspects that we've discussed today, uh, he also discusses. So it's, it's really how do you build your company in order to, to sell it? I think that's, that's very inspirational. And if you can get him on the show, which is obviously the case in two days, um, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hearing that. Yeah. So, and, and I'm honestly, I listen to almost every show that he's, uh, he's putting out there because he's, He's doing something that is interesting. He's, in retrospect, interviewing founders and owners who sold their company and, and asked how the whole process was from starting their company to growing their company to the sales process and after the sales process. And it's always nice to hear in hindsight what went wrong and what did well, what did, what did go well. And I learned a lot um, through, through the show that he provides there. Uh, absolutely. And I think in America, the company owners are, op are more open uh, about it, speaking about what they sold their companies for, uh, how it worked, what went wrong, what went well. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a regular listener uh, there as well. So great, great uh, that you uh, managed to have him here. Yeah. Um, and now you can directly address our audience. Um, anything Is there anything we can help you with? Well, I think apart from the obvious uh, thing that, that business opportunities uh, of company owners that aim to sell their companies are always welcome. Um, I think it's important to spread the word on, on how to sell a business. Um, also, what is important to prepare a business uh, for a good exit. And I'm open to, to speak about this for audiences, um, for instance, for clients um, of companies 
Um, that's always nice discussions um, because I think, as I said, it's important to spread the word. So if there's opportunities there, I'm happy to uh, to follow up on that. Very good. And how can people get in touch with you best? Um, LinkedIn is a good way. They can drop me an email if they manage to uh, to spell my uh, Dutch name correctly. But uh, once they see the uh, um, the podcast, I think that's that's obvious. They can visit my website, which is cnx-transactions.de. And uh, they will find their way to me. Yeah. So it's Willem, uh, W-I-L-L-E-M. And last name is K-E-I-J-Z-E-R. So the first name is Willem, W-I-L-L-E-M, K-E-I-J-Z-E-R. And that's how you find him for sure on LinkedIn. And that, that's not so many with this name in uh, LinkedIn, probably. Definitely not. It was a true pleasure to have you in our show, Willem. I uh, really appreciated uh, speaking to you. It was a pleasure. And um, I hope that um, your uh, audience got some inspiration for, uh, from that. Well, I learned something, so I can say thank you already. That's very good. Thank you, Sammy. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and subscribe to our podcast to never miss a new episode. Do you want to win big whale clients, find new employees, and become a renowned thought leader in your field? So who can help? Simply schedule a strategy call with our host, Sammy Gebele. Get in touch on LinkedIn or via sawoo.io, S-A-W-O-O.io. You can also find all contact details in our show notes. Thanks and see you next time.